Listening to the Through the Bible Studio series with Pastor Nate Holdred. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, at the close of Luke chapter 21, we learned that Jesus would sleep on the Mount of Olives during this final week of his life before going to the cross. And so this simple trust in the Lord, and there he is on the Mount of Olives in the evening time. And it says in verse 1, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, here in Luke chapter 22. And the priests, the chief priests, verse 2, and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now, the unleavened bread feast was seven days long and uh, technically began the day after the Passover. And over time, these two feasts had become linked together to where you would refer to the Feast of Unleavened Bread as the Passover and vice versa. So the Passover, though, is the most important of the three annual pilgrimage festivals in Jerusalem. So at this time, people are just camping out everywhere trying to find lodging. And Jesus and his disciples are there sleeping uh, up on the Mount of Olives. And now the chief priests and the scribes, as they're watching Jesus every day, teach the people, minister to the people, they're angry with him. The envy has grabbed a hold of their hearts, and they've come to the conclusion that they want to put him to to death. The only obstacle for them, the only hurdle, was that they feared the people. If they arrested Jesus publicly, it would just wouldn't go well for them because Jesus was so incredibly popular. Then Satan, verse 3, entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Here is one of the scariest verses in the entire Bible. Satan entered into Judas. Satan here, of course, was attempting to defeat Christ by taking one of Jesus' disciples and turning him against the Lord. Now, the beautiful thing for us as believers is to understand that the enemy's great triumph would also be his great demise. That when Jesus died upon the cross, he was also disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross or in him, Colossians 2, verse 15. So the devil here enters into Judas in order to betray Christ and ultimately lead him to the cross. The question that we might ask is, why would the devil do something like this? This very thing that led to his demise, why did he do it? Well, it's good for us to remember, first of all, that the devil is not omniscient. He is a created being. So perhaps there was a lack of knowledge on his part as to what was occurring in this moment. Also, we know that he is a liar, and perhaps, as many liars do, he had deluded even himself into thinking that perhaps this would be possibly able to lead to him receiving the kingdom. You might even remember that in the parable that Jesus told, the servants 
over the vineyard deluded themselves into thinking that if we kill the son, the inheritance will be ours. And perhaps Satan had believed that within his own sinful mind. As well, it's good for us to remember that Satan is angry. And perhaps in this moment, he simply loses any control of the self and in absolute hatred of Jesus, lashes out against him and comes into Judas. Now, at the beginning of Luke's gospel in the fourth chapter, after the temptation of Christ, we learned in chapter 4, verse 13, that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. And so perhaps the devil thought that this was that opportune moment. He went away, verse 4, and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Uh, The reason that Judas would be uniquely qualified to betray Jesus to the religious leaders is because Judas knew where Jesus spent his evenings. He knew where Jesus was camping. He knew where he was sleeping and where he would customarily go in the nighttime. He knew about the Mount of Olives. He knew about the Garden of Gethsemane. With all of these people in Jerusalem, the religious leaders didn't know where Jesus and his disciples were lodging in the darkness of night, which is what they were looking for to arrest Jesus before doing it in the day was not possible in their minds because of their fear for the people. So they give Judas money. Now, I believe that Judas betrayed Jesus for something much more than money. It seems that there was a hatred in his heart for what Jesus was doing and the kingdom that he was introducing. There seems to be an indication that when Mary washed Jesus's feet with the alabaster flask of fragrant oil and anointed his head with it and prepared his body for burial, that Judas despised that reality and was upset with Jesus and determined in his heart in that moment that he would deny Jesus, that he would betray Jesus to the religious leaders. So this is an incredibly evil thought and evil plot in this moment. Then verse seven. So Judas has made his determination. He's decided I'm going to look for an opportune moment to betray Jesus to the religious leaders. It says, then the day of unleavened bread came on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Now, the way that they would eat the Passover is that there would be one Passover lamb for each household. Jesus here, fittingly, is going to be crucified on the or during the Passover. So, because he's crucified on the actual Passover, this more than likely was the night before the day of preparation for the Passover. So, Uh, They begin to make their preparations and to eat this meal together. Jesus sent Peter and John to go and prepare the Passover that they would eat it. I like that because Peter and John, of course, were the primary 
apostles of the group had great positions inside the apostolic band and great positions in the early church, yet yet they are asked to be the servants of all in preparing this meal for the rest of the disciples along with Jesus. And they said to him, verse 9, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, our first inclination usually when we read of this, that they went into a town and there'd be a man carrying a jar of water and that who would meet them. Our first inclination is that this is a supernatural event, that Jesus received at least the knowledge or had the foreknowledge to know about this man and all of that. But more than likely, this is actually an advanced preparation that Jesus had taken care of. If you think about it, all of this seems to be perfectly designed to keep the location of the Passover meal from Judas. There's Judas in the midst, listening to Jesus, tell John and tell Peter, go into the town, there will be a man with a pot of water upon his head that was unique in that culture, follow him to the house. When he gets there, you go to the master of the house and ask him where the guest room is for me and my disciples. It appears that Jesus wanted to eat this meal so badly with his disciples that he made advanced preparations and made certain that he would not be betrayed during that meal. He wanted it to be uninterrupted, this final moment of sitting and eating and feasting and commissioning his disciples, introducing to them or reminding them of the glory of this new covenant. When the hour came, verse 14, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Here Jesus announces to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why did Jesus so intensely desire to eat this meal? It seems to me that there was more in his heart than simply wanting to say goodbye or say some important things. It seems to me that he wanted to eat, as he said, this Passover. It was this Passover that stood out in the mind of Jesus. There had been thousands of Passovers, but here Jesus wants this Passover. Of all the Passovers that have ever occurred, from the initial Passover there in Egypt, for every Passover that followed, Jesus was looking forward to this Passover. It would be this Passover. It would be this baptism. It would be this fire that Jesus would consume there on the cross of Calvary that would produce a new people and, if you will, a new exodus. You see, the original Passover was really not the ultimate. The ultimate Passover was the one that Jesus conducted there upon the cross. The Passover looked back to the exodus, but for Jesus, 
it looked forward to the cross of Christ. He is the true lamb that is offered as a sacrifice. He is the lamb without blemish. He is the lamb that was slain. And and his blood must be applied upon our lives. And his body must be eaten, much as they had to eat the bodies of the Passover lambs, for strength on the journey to come. And so Jesus here is making a new exodus. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this. And divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Here, Jesus announces that he's making a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. I'm not going to drink it with you until it comes. Now, this is interesting because when he announces that he won't drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes, it seems similar to us from what he said earlier in verse 16 when he says, I will not eat this meal until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So when he says that, we understand, oh, Jesus, he ate this Passover with his disciples and he hasn't eaten this meal again. He's going to eat with us again eternally in the future. You know, as he said, when the kingdom of God comes. But then he announces to his disciples here that he would not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, on one hand, it might sound to us simply like, okay, that must mean that the feasting, again, he's reiterating the same idea. He's not going to eat or drink any of this until the future, in eternity, when his kingdom comes. The interesting thing, however, to consider is that in John chapter 19, verse 28 and 30, Jesus, when he was about to actually yield his spirit there on the cross, of course, after this event, said to fulfill scripture from the Psalms, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, and they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when he received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, perhaps because it was sour wine, it didn't fit the qualification. I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. But sour wine is fruit of the vine, no matter which way you slice it. So perhaps Jesus is saying, hey, I want you guys to see something. I want you to see that, yes, I'm not going to eat this meal until in eternity my kingdom fully comes. But there upon the cross, dying on the cross, having said it is finished and yielding up his spirit, when Jesus drinks that wine upon the cross, it's like he's saying, my kingdom is coming, but my kingdom, you need to know, has now been introduced. All who believe in me are in this kingdom of mine. So just something to consider, of course. And he took the bread, verse 19, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so here, Jesus does a shocking thing. For over 1,500 years, every element in this meal had a specific meaning. Jesus, however, demonstrates fuller meanings and great authority when he says this, this bread, 
I, I don't know what you've thought that it means, but this is my body. And this cup, well, this cup is my blood poured out for you, the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So this meal helps us be directed to the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus here introduces gloriously a new covenant. I don't think that Jesus was saying here that the bread and the cup actually became his body and his blood. That should be obvious to us. He said in other places, I am the bread of life or I am the door, things like that. And we understand that there's a picture that Jesus is using. But here he's enabling us to see and to have a symbol of his body, his incarnation, his suffering, the physical agony that he endured, to understand that he knows our frame, that he sees what we're made of, he's experienced humanity, and then to realize that he makes a new covenant. Now, this new covenant that he speaks of in his blood had been promised in the old covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. He says, there will be internal transformation when he says, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. So we are changed internally in this new covenant. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The promise of personal relationship with God. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. This speaks of full access to God and the new covenant. And then he says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31 verse 34. This speaks of forgiveness plus. I will remember their sin no more. So the new covenant established by Jesus Christ there in that room with his disciples and of course actually put into place there upon the cross. But behold, verse 21, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now, Peter said in his sermon in Acts 2, verse 23, that Jesus was crucified by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But it's interesting that even though that is the reality, God does not remove Judas's human responsibility. Here, Jesus said, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he has been betrayed. Judas should serve as a great warning light to the church. He'd experienced the power of Christ, but something had disillusioned his heart, as I mentioned earlier, and Satan entered into this man. He had everything that Peter and James and John had. There was no distinguishing mark. No one suspected him, but he did not respond to the light that he had been given. And so Jesus here with his disciples he creates this new family there in that upper room. They weren't gathered together with their families, literally eating that bread and cup and Passover meal, but they were gathered together with their new spiritual family in Jesus Christ. 
Now, in that moment, Luke records that a dispute, verse 24, also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. In the, in the middle of this solemn moment, they do this shocking thing and begin to have an argument about who is the greatest. And the context was simply that Jesus said, one of you will betray me, which as they talked about it and said, is it I, is it I, is it I, eventually led them to consider who would be the greatest, the common state of man. And he said to them, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Here Jesus says to them, look, the way of the Gentile world is to exercise lordship. It's a a way of dominance. And there's almost, it seems, a hint of bewilderment from Jesus here, because he says, And even though they do that, even though they exercise this lordship, this dominance, those who are under them, they're called, the people over them are called benefactors. These people that are being dominated actually refer to them as benefactors, a a person who blesses them, a person who gives them things, money and support and all of that. It's like Jesus is saying, unbelievably, after being lorded over, the people call those same lords benefactors. It's preposterous. And that might be an indication of the heart of man, which is so prone to crown. But Jesus said, that's not the way you're to operate. Not so with you, verse 26. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Here, Jesus says to them that there's a new day, and in this new day, they needed to emulate him, to look at him, to see the one who is the greatest, the one who clearly is the greatest, the one who stepped out of eternity, lowered himself, and became the servant of all. Now we know what true greatness looks like. He's given us the truth about it. And as he has been so great to us in lowering himself, then you and I, he says, are to lower ourselves to serve others. And these men did become great servants. They served the church. They gave their lives to the early movement. They prayed and they taught and they helped the needy and they loved people and they reached other nations and ethnicities and they preached and taught the word of God. And you and I are to become servants as well. Jesus is our perpetual example of this. We want to be like the man, Christ Jesus, lowering ourselves and loving in that kind of way. Jesus said to them in verse 28, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, Jesus here, this is so fascinating, he had just predicted their denial of him. He had just said, you're going to deny me. And even though he says that to them, he says to them here, you've stayed with me in my trials. In other words, they had remained with him during his ministry. And Jesus would never forget that. There were a lot of people who came and went during Jesus's earthly ministry And these men weren't good at a lot of things, but they were good at staying. 
They were good at staying. And, and like the friends who remained with David during Absalom's rebellion, these men had stayed with Jesus. And Jesus saw. He said, you're those who stayed with me during my trials, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Then Jesus speaks directly to Peter in verse 31 when he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, Simon was Peter's original name, and Jesus uses it here, perhaps to emphasize, Peter, you haven't always been the rock. And he emphasizes his name by repeating it. This shows the deep concern coming from Jesus. He tells him, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Now, the thing is that both Satan and Jesus want to sift us. Satan wants to sift us so that our lives will become like worthless chaff. Jesus wants to to sift us so that our lives might become like the valuable wheat. He wants to get rid of the chaff. And in a sense, you could say that our lives or the different moments of our lives, the elements of our lives are like wheat or are like chaff. Jesus says, I've prayed for you, Peter. I've prayed for you. Peter's faith did not fail, apparently, because Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And any prayer that Jesus prays is a prayer that is answered and received and heard by God. And Peter wavered. His heart had grown weary, but his faith apparently did not fail. He might have faltered. He might have lost hope. He he might have had moments of discouragement. But even when his hope was dead and his courage had failed, he still apparently believed. And Jesus said, when you have turned again, in other words, when you make your comeback, you receive God's grace and you're forgiven and cleansed of this sin, strengthen your brothers. You know, for those of us who have failed before in our lives and gone through that time of shame and then received the forgiveness of God and the restorative work of Christ and word of Christ inside of our lives, you know, that can be used by God to enable us to powerfully minister to God's people. And here, Peter would become a dispenser of God's grace because he had so received God's grace. Jesus says, when that happens, when you return, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, verse 33, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. How often have we said this same kind of thing to Jesus? Jesus, I'm ready to go. I can do this. And Jesus says, no, you'll deny me three times. It's so much better to know our limitations, to know our weaknesses, and to walk humbly with our God. And he said to them all in verse 35, when I sent you out with no money, nor or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he's referring, of course, to earlier in the book of Luke, chapter 9 and also chapter 10, when he sent them out as the 12 and sent them out with the 72, two by two. And they went out without provisions. He'd cared for them. They'd been provided for. He says, did you lack anything in those commissions? They said nothing. 
He said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Here is an interesting statement from Jesus. It appears that Jesus is saying, as he quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 12, that because he is going to experience hostility there upon the cross, they will, or the church will perpetually, at least have pockets within it that also experience hostility from this world. And they needed to prepare for that hostility. They needed to pack a bag. They needed to provide for their needs. They needed to protect themselves. And they even needed to, here he says, bring a sword. Now, this wasn't for offense. This wasn't for them to make disciples with or to convert people with. This was more than likely just simple protection on those ancient roads of the day. But it was simply a way for him to say, you guys need to brace for a different kind of future and understand that hostility will come. They said, verse 38, look, Lord, here are two swords, like little boys. They didn't hear anything about the money bag or the backpack or the extra garments, but they heard about the swords and he said to them, it is enough. Now, people think different things as to what Jesus meant at this point. I think he was simply moving on to more pressing matters. It was time for him to go into the Garden of Gethsemane and pray. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.